0: Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and coming to you from Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, public access television is that friend who brings you up to speed on local politics and then gets up to some weird shit at night. And she's in trouble and needs your help. We'll talk about what might happen to public access programming if new FCC rules go into effect.
1: There's a lot of noise out there. So when you think about why public access when there's YouTube, well, why Rupert Murdoch when there's YouTube? And then
0: Rainbow Ruthie found public access stardom in the 90s. Now she's revisiting her teenage glory days with a new show that riffs on the old. What was even weirder, which I think is really cool about the original show
2: is I wasn't like that in person. I was really shy in high school, but it was a persona that I was playing of this very like fierce feminist character that I was not like in my normal life. I was like projecting sort of like who I wanted to be.
0: preparing for our next segment, I went down some deep public access rabbit holes, some of them home to Rapid T. Rabbit, a wall-eyed puppet and later full-sized furry who loves talking about public transit and video games. There's also Mrs. Mouth, the upside-down head of a man with eyes drawn on his chin and a wick around his neck who makes prank phone calls while being spoon-fed yogurt. And Coca Crystal, the far-out flower child who dances and gets high with Debbie Harry and Philip Glass. This and Wayne's World is what comes to mind when many people think of public access. Then there's the less flamboyant programming on these channels, which plays a vital role in local governance and democratic participation. But a new FCC proposal might reduce funding, putting many public access stations across the country in jeopardy. To tell us more, we're joined by Tony Riddle, the Vice President of Community Media here at BRIC. Welcome to woman 2 bk Thanks for having me. Do you have a favorite public access show?
1: Um, I officially do not have a favorite public access. Is that show. your
0: policy, or official well, the, policy?
1: It's as though you asked your mother, um, which of your children do you love best? Right. And of course, you wouldn't love one of them more. I love all of them. And you e- have- even the ones that you mentioned, you know, which are sort of the typically funny ones. But um, there's a lot of there's a lot on public access that's actually very moving and powerful.
0: And you yourself have a long career in public access.
1: Yeah, I started off as a community producer myself about 30, 40 years ago.
0: So you started out as a producer and public access drew you in. What yeah. about it was compelling?
1: Yeah, so here's what happened was I had a film camera. I had an 8mm Nikon camera that I kept putting in the pawn shop because I was broke all the time. And eventually <laughs> I lost it and didn't have it. And I looked up and they just opened the public access center in uh, Atlanta about 1980 with uh, cameras and equipment. That So I just went in to use it. So that was my full interest at the time was I just wanted access to equipment. Um, but I started understanding at some point that, you know, there's also an audience there, you know, that you have this channel that you can actually begin reaching people. And it started coinciding with my, my interest as an artist, which was to be able to do um, sort of conscious work that could affect people's lives and affect the way that people think and realize, well, this is really a medium uh, that would work. And then uh, gradually I started understanding the whole democratic nature of it and the importance of the structure of a democratic media.
0: And talk to me a little bit about that inherent democratic structure. How did public access television come into being?
1: Well, the reason it exists is because cable came along, which makes billions, literally billions of dollars, off of being able to sell people essentially television. But the only way it can exist is that they have to have their wires or fibers run through the public rights-of-way. Uh, either on telephone poles or underground, and only the public has those. So, in other words, they wouldn't be able to jump across the street without going through a public rights-of-way. So they have to pay to use that, and the Congress set up laws which govern how they pay. Public access was created because the government felt that we live in an electronic age where it's important for people to have access to communications, to communicate with each other as a society. So public access, in essence, is the public uh, square. So you mentioned a couple of the people in the public square, Rabbit T. Rabbit.
0: We all know Wayne's that guy in that. the public square.
1: Yeah, that guys in the public square. You can walk out of the building right now, that guy's out there. Sure. Um, but you also have uh, poets, people who have ideas about society. You have people that have um, you know, religious beliefs, particularly beliefs that are not necessarily common. You have uh, language minorities. You've got people who have come from other countries. You've got young people, old people. Everybody has an equal voice. We don't decide what goes on and what doesn't go on. We put everything on equally.
0: So the general idea behind public access is that because cable channels are making money off of using public space, that they have to then give back and provide money and space for for all of us, for the rest of us, to to exchange ideas.
1: That's exactly right, so the cable companies pay um, Approximately 5 or 6 percent of their gross plus uh, a series of different services that they negotiate with the local municipality to be able to operate. One of those services is public access. There's also educational and government access. Government access typically will have city council meetings and so forth. Educational access is what it sounds like. It varies from place to place. I mean, you wouldn't expect somebody to be able to set up a lemonade shop in Central Park and not pay some franchising fees to the city, you know, because it's an opportunity for them. Uh, it serves a public good, but, you know, we negotiate these things.
0: Right. And so tell me about what the FCC is considering doing that would change the way public access operates.
1: So, simply put, the cable company, for instance, here in Brooklyn, is required to provide some support, operating support for Brooklyn Free Speech and Brick TV. They're required to put, provide channels because, of course, you need channels. We, in turn, provide all of these uh, services. The way that the law is written, uh, the federal law, what the FCC wants to do after 35 years of law since 1984, however much time that is, um, they would like to start having the in-kind services uh, have a monetary value and subtract them from the 5%. So, in other words, all of the money that uh, comes to support public access here at BRIC would suddenly be thrown into the same pot of money that goes into the general budget for the city, which means that there would be a reduction of many millions of dollars a year to the city, and we would be put in competition with other kinds of essential services.
0: Right. We don't want media and arts to be in competition with uh, putting police officers on the street or other public services, because we know how that goes.
1: No. And in fact, the law, as it was originally written, as it was discussed in Congress, allowed for both monetary support and in-kind support like channels under the new rules that the fcc is proposing a very right-wing fcc which is also the fcc that has tried to eliminate net neutrality the cable company would be able to for instance say this channel that we're on right now is worth 15 million dollars you know on the market so we're going to subtract that from what we have to pay the city oh and in fact now the city owes us money
0: Wow, I see. And, and so you talked about the FCC a little bit and about how it's conservative leaning. Who is the FCC? Who appoints commissioners? And who do they report to?
1: OK, so the, the party that controls the White House uh, appoints the FCC commissioners. Generally speaking, there's, there's five and three will be from the majority party and two will be from the minority party. And so that's how it is. So it's always a three to two vote. But the chair is always appointed. Um, by the party in power.
0: I see. So we've seen, as you said, an assault on net neutrality. I read that they also recently tried to eliminate subsidies that they provide to um, Native American mm-hmm. lands uh, to subsidize internet broadband. So it seems like they have a quite conservative agenda. Yeah. What's at the root of this? Money. That makes sense. Yeah, that's
1: that's yeah. all That's all it comes down to. So even when you look at net neutrality, the, the point of that is that that the large companies that control your internet access, or that provide your internet access, of which there aren't very many, uh, if they get into uh, having content, then the company that's both providing the internet access and the content uh, can decide to preference the content that they're sending, and the content that comes from Brick TV could very well come out pixelated or compressed.
0: Right. We don't want our beautiful faces compressed for our viewers.
1: Uh, mine could stand a little compression. Okay, so but you're I cool mean, with the pixelation, a, you know, actually. Uh, pixelation, <laughs> no. I went through that as a teenager, but compression's okay.
0: Um, This is interesting. I read that in 2002, uh, in sort of the early days of broadband internet, the FCC decided to designate it an information service, which means that it is not subject to the same type of cable licensing fees that we're talking about. But of course, now the landscape has changed completely and internet providers are actually competing. They are the the quote unquote television, right? So is there a way that that can be revisited or has that ship sailed and we won't see any Uh, investment by internet companies into public media?
1: It's not really the responsibility of private companies to try to decide uh, what the public interest is, but that's why we have bureaus like the FCC or why we have Congress and so forth, because, you know, you can't just leave everything to the market. So there's going to need to be some public good in any of these services.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about the programming here at Brick. So there are two channels, tell us how that's structured and what these changes might mean to the programming here at Brick.
1: The simplest version is that it could all go away. You know, we've been here um, since 1988 in one form or another. Uh, Brick TV is set up to make sure that all of the stories that are important to people in Brooklyn get covered so that we really have a sense of who we are as a community the wide variety of things that take place that are not covered in mainstream media. So we have this two-prong approach to uh, providing um, public information. Um, we have both Brooklyn Free Speech and Brick TV. Brooklyn Free Speech is uh, all the channels. There's four, five if you count the, the bulletin board channel. Four channels completely devoted to the public. The public can bring in uh, any programs that they want, and we will play them as long as they're l- legal programs. We don't pre-screen them. We also provide classes and equipment so that, you know, everybody can have a strong voice. We're really leaning towards teaching people how to tell their own stories. So that's really to give voice to the people in Brooklyn. The problem is that the way the FCC is going, the funding could disappear. Uh, Alternatively, the channels could be taken away if the cable companies have their way because, of course, they'd like to have more channels for their own programming. I mean, that's their business. That's what they do. Right. So, I mean, there's a, there's a pretty big danger. There's always been a pretty big danger, and we've always had to fight, you know, through organizations like the Alliance for Community Media and uh, NATOA, which is the cable officers for the cities, have always fought, you know, on the public's behalf. So I've, I feel pretty confident that we'll make it through this, but it is really a struggle, and it's going to require us being able to call on the people who have used uh, the facilities, the organizations that have been helped by it, the people whose stories have been told, we need people to speak up and talk about the value of public access.
0: We're in a moment of real media consolidation, and I feel like we've gone from nobody knowing who Sinclair Media is to almost everybody knowing who Sinclair Media is and the threat that they pose um, to democratic media. Can you talk a little bit about why public access programming is still important in an era of the internet? I feel like some people might say, but we have YouTube, we don't need public access anymore.
1: Let's say you have a cat video, um, which I do. You do. Well, it's it, adorable. It may be, the video. I'm sure. Uh, it may be that people can find your cat video, and it may be that they can't. There's a lot of noise out there, you know. So, so when you think about why public access when there's YouTube, well, why Rupert Murdoch when there's YouTube? You know, Rupert Murdoch. You know, despite his politics, he's a smart person with regard to media, and so he's got Fox News. You know, he's got news on the cable. On cable, he's got news on the internet. He's got uh, social media presence. So I don't. I'm not sure why it would be expected that that the public would be thrown into a big noisy bin, while people who have a financial interest in commercial media uh, should have a form of media that people can make sense out of. Right. Or if you look at like Brooklyn. We have one of the largest Haitian uh, populations anywhere in the world outside of probably southern Florida and Haiti. It's big enough, I would say, to be a whole town someplace in the United States, and yet there's no Haitian media anywhere in commercial media in New York City. So even where there would be a financial interest in having such a program, uh, it doesn't exist, which tells you there's biases in the way that uh, even commercial media operates. It's not even just about the dollar. So we're meeting a need in a community uh, that's definitely there that's not going to be met by commercial means.
0: And I think we're in this moment of talking about who's at the top of all of the major movie studios and the major right. TV networks, and we're finding that it's very lacking in diversity. And I think, yes, absolutely, that system needs to be changed from the inside, but also public access in the interim provides a means for yeah. other voices to be heard.
1: How things are structured determines what the content is going to be. So if you if you have a broadcaster, let's say, so that's, that's really a, a tall antenna that's powered by a lot of energy that's one voice speaking to thousands of millions of people. On the other hand, you get something like public access, the microphone is spread out all over the place. Everybody is able to speak. Anybody is able to speak. And so, the structure is actually democratic. If you wanna have a democratic society, you can't have oligarchical uh, media. It's just, it doesn't work. If you have a strong central speaking point, then it's always going to there's always going to be dictatorial forces that try to, to mount that and to control that. And so the only way to avoid that is to create structures that are democratic in their essence.
0: You talked a little bit about also trying to provide people with tools and training in order to broadcast their messages effectively. Can you tell me a little bit about what we do at Brooklyn Free Speech TV here at BRIC?
1: When we first started, you know, decades ago, the whole idea was teach people how not to break a camera. That's um, important. But you know, still worth is. learning. It's the we we still start with that. But nowadays, I would say like the generations that are out now are, are much more media literate. So we're really trying to move away from just the basic training, which we still offer, but more towards sort of an in depth training. You know, to teach people how to be an effective storyteller.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if people are upset about these proposed changes, um, how can they make their voices heard by the FCC and their legislators?
1: Well, you know, in our electronic age, there's some really easy ways that you can do that. And I hope that um, through this program, we'll put out the, the website where people can go to the petition Definitely. about the, the rulemaking that we were talking about. It's always helpful to write or call your local elected officials because I think a lot of them really believe in us. But, you know, of course... There's only two things that move politics, and that's money and people. And we're not the money side, so we really need as many people uh, speaking out in favor of what we do as possible.
0: Great. Well, Tony, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Thank
1: you. This this has been great. Where do you get a thing like this?
0: (laughs) You can have your very own show. I'm on it. (laughs) Thank you. Before there was YouTube and Snapchat and Vine, there was Public Access TV. It was a media platform for the rest of us, a way for people with something to say to find an audience. Our next guest launched her own public access show at the age of 16 to talk about life as a New York teen and being, quote, pissed off about a lot of things. Rainbow Ruthie gained a cult following, and now 20 years later, she's revisiting it with a semi-autobiographical series. We've invited her on to talk about the new show and what it was like to be a public access star. Ruthie Morantz, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So tell us about Rainbow Ruthie. Why did you decide to get into public access programming?
2: Well, I always just tell everyone that I was a huge public access fan, and that's actually the truth. I think I started watching in middle school. I mean, both my parents were like public school teachers, had a lot of free time. I watched a lot of television, and I discovered that there was four channels In Manhattan that had like the weirdest, most shocking and bizarre and amazing shows that I've ever seen in my life. What were some of your favorites? I mean, there was like a satanic live call-in show, there was this guy that barbecued his iguana, there was anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it was just me watching this as a seventh and eighth grader being like, this is really rad. Like I wanna do this. And I actually didn't really think about it that much. I just was like, well, I'm doing this. And I asked my dad for a high video camera, because that was the medium at the time. And he was like, sure, I'll buy you a camera, but you have to make your show. Like, we are not blowing money on this camera. My dad was not like a big gift giver. So I was like, oh, I'm doing it. And I just applied, and I was so at that time, I'm not sure if anything has changed, but you just provided your proof of address, and you sent in a description of what you wanted your show to be about, and you had a 28-minute show, either weekly, biweekly. You chose, and they gave you your preferred slot. Mine was on Friday nights at 930 for four years. and Primetime, TGIF. Right? You were up against uh, like Boy Meets Worlds. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, well, there was no metrics. We don't know who was watching. But right, we don't know who watched more, which show right. was more watched. Right. I, it was Born probably, probably Rainbow Ruthie. But I had two VCRs. I would like um, edit off two VCRs. I'd press play and release. And, you know, the first couple shows were like 38 minutes long. And there was huge blue spaces in between each clip. But I got it down. And the show was sort of just like. I really didn't think about it, I just did it. And um, part of the reason I loved it was because uh, it was just part of this community that was making really amazing work. Um, and we all sort of knew each other, and we'd all see each other drop off the tapes, or we'd watch each other's shows, or we'd do call-ins. Um, and then, yeah, the show sort of just like took off because I was one of the only teenagers on the network that was, you know, making this sort of really documentary style thing of like me hanging out with my friends or me ranting on my bed about the patriarchy or me, you know, going to see the Spice Girls movie and bringing the camera and like whatever was happening was just, I was just sort of making that the show. Do you remember what you wrote in your description of the show? I think it was like a teenage girl and her antics, like something about Walking around New York
0: City, yelling at people. I mean, that was like literally like what I did. <laughs> so it was sort of like a like a slice of life show. Just whatever was happening for you that week is what you would record. Yeah. So
2: every show started with me sitting on my be- my teenage bed, which, you could sort of, trace my maturity levels by the, by my wall. Like when I was 13, I think I was when I first really started the show. Um, there was tons of posters and stuff. And as I got older, it just got, you know, less and less crowded on the wall. Um, and you know, my face changed, my body changed, everything was like happening on camera. So what an age
0: to be recording your every moment.
2: But what was even weirder, which I think is really cool about the original show is I wasn't like that in person. I was really shy in high school. I was not in the popular Crew, my show was sort of like a secret, and I wouldn't watch it once I turned it in. It was just like, okay, this is done now. I can't, you know, look at it. But um, it was a persona that I was playing of this very like fierce feminist character that I was n- not like in my normal life. So it was, that was even more fascinating as I was like looking back on it because I was like, oh, okay, I was like projecting sort of like who I wanted to be, you know. Rainbow Ruthie was this like, very outspoken woman that was just sort of like in your face and talking to people on the street. Now I'm just like, A incredibly socially anxious adult. Like, how did this happen? Like, who
0: is that person? This sort of (laughs) sounds like the plot of eighth grade. Did you see that? Like, she's, and you know, this is in a digital age, so she's, you know, vlogging on YouTube. Totally. But she's like rehearsing who she wants to be in real life at school with every video where she's like, I'm going to tell you about how to be confident. Right. And she lacks confidence entirely. I lacks
2: so much confidence, but Rainbow Ruthie had the gall to do whatever she wanted. So it was really, like, a really interesting thing to realize now, that people would stop me in high school and be like, was that you on TV, like, doing some crazy stuff? And I was like, oh, I don't, you know, it was just like, I was totally not, I was presenting who I wanted to be. So I, I think that was a really good outlet to have in high school, especially as, like, a woman and going through, uh, navigating a bunch of stuff in New York. It was like really good to ha- sort of have this camera that was like a tool to record my life. So. And where did you come up with the name Rainbow Ruthie? I was from Rainbow Bright. Please don't sue me, Rainbow Bright. <laughs> <laughs> I loved Rainbow Bright. I loved like toys, it had a nice ring to it.
0: <laughs> Do you have an episode that was your favorite?
2: Um, I think like the first few episodes were really incredibly precious to watch because I'm like just a child, like a baby. Um, And we're doing sketch, like really bad sketch comedy about like Singled Out, which is an old MTV show and Oasis and like, I don't know, we're just totally in a way that I could never be now, just completely authentically moving through these social issues without any filter and just kind of, my my goal was always authenticity. So when my show sort of started picking up steam and these like teen magazines and all these other people started trying to figure out how to monetize me as a teenage girl, like, can you be an MTV VJ? Can you do this? I was just like, no, F that. Like, I love public access. Like, it's for the people. And now I'm like, was that a really good decision to turn all those deals down? I don't know. But uh, <laughs> But, you know, it was very important to me to maintain the integrity that I was the person in control and I was a, a, a woman controlling my own image. Mm-hmm. That was, and I mean, I still feel that way, but it, it was it was definitely like that was part of um, why I never let the show go to another producer.
0: And how did Rainbow Ruthie end as a public
2: access show? It just ended because I went to college. Like that's the only reason it ended. It just was like this natural, end of life where you graduate high school and I just was like, well, I'm not going to be on public access forever. I mean, I should probably study how to be a filmmaker because this is like, I guess this is filmmaking. And I went to school, I went away, I like became an adult. and then you know, 20 years later, I started watching the tapes and it, it was just like totally insane.
0: Tell us about this new project of yours. And you seem to be talking about it, uh, about the idea of performing who you want to be on camera. Right. Well, yeah, I, I was sort of, I was finishing
2: my graduate degree at NYU Film School and I was studying really intensely how to be a writer and director. And I would sort of like mention this public access show I used to have sometimes. People are like, what? Uh, you need to write about that. And I was like, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to be on camera. I don't want to look at the tapes, really. And a lot of it was really I had, like, recently lost my dad. And I was knew that, like, a lot of my life with my dad was on those tapes because it was a lot of, like, this idyllic time between my father and I where we were living. I was in high school and we were living together. And, you know, it took a lot of time and therapy to, like, be like, all right, I'm going to watch the tapes. This is... A part of my life, and maybe it's something people can really connect to. And you know, I went away, I watched all of them, and I was like, "Wow, okay, there's a lot here." So the comedy came really quickly to me because I was like, in the tapes, I'm extremely like hopeful and energetic and just in your face, and like I'm like, quite frankly the opposite now, where I'm just like <laughs> not that way. So I, I started um, writing a comedy about. Being in your mid-30s and being a former public access star and trying to re-enter like the social media landscape with like no followers or no anything, and now having to compete with like the YouTubers and the real influencers, and sort of being like the mother of that genre in a weird way, and but having to like reclaim my space. Spike Lee was my mentor at NYU, and he gave me like a small grant to make the pilot. That's sort of how the series came about. And It's really fun for me as a writer and director because it's like all I have to do is imagine like I had a real life stalker named Dionysus Lunar Sky who was quite a name who was a crackhead in the East Village. And he was my huge fan. He would send me like rainbow items every week because I had a P.O. box that people could like send me fan mail. So I was like, where would Dionysus be now? You know, like I just sort of get to go back and forth. So it's really fun for me to craft it. And then also just noticing the difference between being, I had a real life sort of uh, Instagram star in the pilot named Parker Kitt Hill, who's someone that actually, you know, is one of those people that has a million trillion Instagram followers. And it's been really interesting to me because I, you know, like people used to have to actually write me hate mail, you know? There was no internet. You have to be really motivated to sit down and write a
0: letter. Yeah, fill the stamp
2: on it, send it in. Like, I really hate you so much. Like, sometimes it was in cursive. Like, there was a lot of effort. It's a totally different
0: game. You mentioned being a little reticent to put yourself on camera again. Did you consider casting someone who kind of looks like you? Yes. Why did you decide not to? I said that to Spike, and he
2: was just like, what? (laughs) Spike said no. you'd have to recreate the footage which you can't. It's just there's right. something really special about you can make something look like it was in the 90s, but this the actual archival footage looks so great that I just had to take one for the team and act. And my only feeling in acting was like, okay, well my character's really awkward and uncomfortable. So, I'm going
0: to totally nail this. <laughs> trying to think that you know, you're at you were at such a tender age mm-hmm. when you had this public access show. Would you want a younger sister or a, a young teen friend to do something similar today on social media platforms or do you think that it's like a different a different world?
2: I think it is a different world because everything is monetized but I I, I feel like there's going to be a resurgence of like counterculture to the, all of this I mean I feel probably everyone feels that way but public access was that it was like punk, it was counterculture it was like completely like, something you're not going to find on broadcast, right? But it's on TV. Like you can you can see it. I feel like it's inevitable for people to start, especially young people to start like creating their own stuff that lives outside of being monetized and is just like for their own expression. And I really liked Vine for that reason. I thought Vine was kind of like public access. It was like you have 6 seconds just like make something insane you know and i it reminded me of like the spirit of public access so i think it'll i think it'll come back again and you know i think people should control their own images i mean they do that on instagram but really like let go of all that bs right. and just kind of like make their own stuff
0: i mean i think that's really true that if you were a teen in the 90s and had something to say it was either public access Photocopying a zine at Kinko's, right. Or maybe getting like a college radio show. Yes. And there was, it was all sort of like DIY, and it lacked polish, right? And now, as you said, Instagram—you sort of control your own image, but like not, not, not really. really, not really. Instagram owns that, and like
2: all these other people are looking at your profile to see how it looks, and like it's not in the same spirit. I mean, really, YouTube. Is was that, you know, at the very beginnings of YouTube where you could just kind of like look around and see this weird stuff. Tell us about where we can see this new show. Well, you can't see it yet, but um, hopefully it'll be soon. I am probably gonna have a couple screenings in New York, um, but for right now... You can check out my trailer online and my website. And the pilot just premiered at South By. The pilot just came back. Yeah, we just came back from South By. That was really fun. And hopefully, you'll be seeing more of it soon. (laughs) Great. And is there any way
0: to see the original Rainbow Ruthie episodes? Not unless someone buys the pilot. (laughs) Somebody, for the love of God, buy the pilot. Rainbow Ruthie must be unleashed. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ruthie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Appreciate your time. (laughs) That's the show for today. See you next time. 112BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Vargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bagosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leith, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham.